Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you here today. I'm Pastor David Schmall, Senior Pastor here at Valley. And uh, welcome. It's good to have you here in our second service here on our Sunday. And uh, we're in a series called Huddle Up. And uh, we're talking about small groups. And last week we launched that in our first part. And we've got today and, and next week where we'll cover this and, and talking about the essential part of what we believe and what we're asking you, what our expectation of, of those who call this their church home. We believe this is where life, church, uh, life change happens. We really believe that because we believe what the Bible teaches us. The Bible lays a wonderful foundation for us as to why we should meet in small groups to enhance our faith, to be able to walk in the way God has called us to walk. So last week I talked about Jesus in his method, his methodology. We talk about discipleship, where we get that from Jesus himself, who taught us how to make disciples, gathered 12 men, the perfect size group as we learned, and began to teach them, pour into their lives. And they interacted. They took what they learned and they, they, they you know, fleshed it out, as they say, with, with one another in their relationship as they encouraged, as they challenged, even rebuked one another in walking through this, this whole journey. So Jesus watched them, or rather, he, he did the ministry, they watched, then he asked them to do it, and he watched, and then he released them. And then amazing thing happens. Actually, an overwhelming, shocking thing happens. Jesus had been warning them all along he was getting ready to leave, and he told them that it would be in very, very stark, very dramatic, uh, even traumatic ways. And so, of course, no one knew exactly what Jesus was talking about. They, they didn't believe that the miracle-working Son of God would be subjected to what he was getting ready to be subjected to. And so he was... Uh, in, you know, he was captured, he was beaten, crown of thorns was shoved on his head, he was judged, and he was crucified brutally for having done nothing. And so they watched this happen. So the, the Christians, these followers of Christ, are literally traumatized. I mean, you can imagine. We talk about PTSD. Well, this was PTSD. These were men and women who watched their son, their friend, their leader be brutalized right in front of their eyes. And then only three days later for him to walk up to them, and of course now they're in complete shock, and him hold out his hands and he's got holes in his hands, and he's got a hole in his side. Thomas couldn't believe it, and Jesus said, well, put your hand right in there, you'll see. And then Thomas believed. And then he walked with them for several weeks, and he taught them some more and basically said, look, look, everything has changed. Everything I taught you, now go and make disciples. Now you go and do what I showed you to do. So he gave them the method of how the kingdom of God, and he said, you know, the kingdom of God is going to be advancing, and it's going to be advancing through you, and I give you everything you need to make it happen. More than anything, I give you my name and the right to bear my name and to speak my name. So the miracles you saw me doing, you're going to do, but even more than these. So now they're, they're filled up. And he says, now, okay, so go and make disciples. And he said, wait, 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 before you go, I want you to wait for the Holy Spirit that I've been talking to you about. You're going to be empowered. Empowered? Yes. Even more than you have been up to this point. Well, we've seen it, amazing things, Jesus. And he, well, yeah, well, you're going to get more. The Holy Spirit's going to come and empower you. Well, what is it for? To be my witnesses. Because you're going to go into Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the world, and you're going to go in my name, you're going to speak my name, and you're going to see amazing things happen. And he said, I want to give you the power in order to do that. So the disciples, of course, you know, they're reeling. 
And what tops it all off as far as the trauma is concerned, he leaves. He's standing there and he goes, okay, see ya. He ascends in their eyes and you can, you can just see him going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. We're only just getting started here. But he goes and he says, but the Holy Spirit can't come until I go. He says, I'm going to be with you always, even to the ends of the earth. Even though I'm physically gone, I'm still going to be present by the Spirit of God inside you. It's going to be okay, guys. So now you see the church, about 120 people, okay? So they have grown. This is probably man, woman, and child. Families, the 12 disciples, their families, possibly a couple of cousins, and Nicodemus and and his family. So you count them all up to about 120 people. And what are they going to do? Well, they don't know what to do. So the first thing they do is they say, well, you know that we still got a rental on that room that we took Passover in, right? Yeah, yeah, let's go there. So they go to the upper room, and they go there, and they wait. And so 120 people all stacked into this small room. Apparently, you can still find it. I've never been there, but apparently that room is is identified. And so anyway, so you can imagine 120 people in there. Man, they must have been just all in no square foot of where they were just sitting and waiting. And what were they doing then? Just waiting? What is he going to do? I don't really know. He just said the Holy Spirit's coming. How's he going to come? Don't know. Making meals, taking care of everybody, waiting, waiting, waiting. And all of a sudden, when the day of Pentecost came, the Holy Spirit came like a rushing mighty wind coming through this, this, this room. And they could feel it almost like a rushing wind, somewhat of an, an earthquake. And all of a sudden, tongues of fire develops. On, and they're like, you got fire on your head. No, you got fire on your head. And they're just going, and all of a sudden they start speaking in these other languages and they're filled with joy and they're praising God. They're they're, they're being overwhelmed by something supernatural that's happening among them. And so they come pouring out because the first thing they think is, we gotta go tell everybody else about what's going on here. So they go outside. Well, little did they know that almost all the civilized nations, uh, a nation surrounding the Jews had come to, to to, to to the feast, the day of Pentecost. And so they were there. And so they see all these people come pouring out and they're speaking in their languages and they're praising God. They're quoting scripture. It's, it's, it's just amazing. They're going, well, who are these guys? How do they know what we speak? We know that guy. Wait, that, that's Peter and that's John. And these guys, they don't speak those languages. And there they are. So now Peter, the whole thing's been set up by God. Peter walks forward. Now Peter, the last guy any, of, any one of us would think that would do this, denying Jesus three times. He's, he's shell-shocked himself, not really doing a lot, kind of laying in the back. But all of a sudden he sees that, you know what? It's fish or cut bait, man. I either am in or I'm out. This is, I, obviously God set this up. And so if I die today, at least I go out doing what Jesus wanted me to do. So he steps through the crowd and he stands in front of all of these Jews who are all looking surprised and shocked and knows he's probably going to get stoned. So he stands out there and he says, look, that Jesus, you know, the one you crucified brutally, that one, God has made both Lord and Savior. None of you, everything you came here to do, everything you came to, to, that you have believed and everything you've walked in is now nullified because, or fulfilled really is a better word, in Jesus Christ because we saw him. He rose from the dead. And so he preaches the gospel. And so now you got that moment of tension and you're thinking to yourself, well, what's gonna happen next? Peter's, I mean, Peter's gone. He's a goner. But that's not what happens. What happens is an amazing revival. 3,000 of them, 3,000 come to Christ, come running forward saying, tell us what we need to do. And they're shocked. You're kidding. This, we never saw anything happen like this. 
even greater things will I do because I've gone unto the Father. First experience, boom. And the church is born. Now, the church was already 120 people, but it was, it, it was, it was, it was in the form of a bunch of people who were clueless, a bunch of people who were waiting, a, people, a bunch of people who were not empowered. They had a knowledge of Christ, but did not have his power. And what, what do they do with the 3,000 people? Of course, they're going to baptize in water, and they're going to lay hands for them to receive the Holy Spirit too. The church is born. What next? Well, you got to ask yourself the question. Here, these guys have never experienced this. They've never led a church of that size. The first mega church is born. And so Peter and the guys have to come together and say, man, we got some problems. They brought a bunch of widows with them. We got to feed them. We got to do this. They got to do that. The only thing they need, now they've been praying. They replace Judas and they get another, uh, another apostle in there. So they go back to 12. And so they immediately say, God, what next? And the Holy Spirit leads them. And he tells them to do two things. One, he says, look. And in some measure of this is just natural for these guys. Because they're like, well, where is our center? Where is our place? Where do we know that God will meet us? Well, the temple, of course. Because the temple meant everything to the Jew. Jesus was a Jew. All the first converts were Jews. So they're going to go back to the temple. And that's exactly what they do. So they go rushing to the temple on the first day of the week, which was you know, they didn't want to meet on the, the uh, last day of the week because that's when all the Jewish stuff is happening. So they go on the first day of the week, and that's where the Christians met. And what happened there was amazing, and we'll get to that in just a second. But then they realized, gosh, this is so good. I mean, my life, I've been kicked out of my synagogue. Have you been kicked out of your synagogue? Yes. That meant their whole life, their financial connections, their way of doing business, all changed overnight. Can you imagine that? You, that your clientele all have been turned on its head. You're starting from scratch. So what do the Christians do? They say, well, look, we ought to hang out together. And they're so excited about what God is doing, they meet from house to house. So they, they, in other words, on the first day of the week, they meet in the temple courts. Then they go home and they start connecting in their houses. Now, last week I talked about that. And next week I'm going to finish up on the whole concept, why this is such a strong powerful biblical concept. So the church begins to form in a very unique way. As Dr. Neighbor called the two-winged bird, there was the temple, the large gathering, where they all could look around and say, gosh, look at all these Christians. I'm not alone. I'm not the only one out there fighting in my classroom, going off to college. I'm not the only one who sits at my desk lonely. I'm not the only one out there that, that seems to be fighting against the dream. But I look around, and all these people are worshiping. All these people are listening. All these people are crying, and they're, they're pouring in. They're, they're giving their lives. So the whole congregational experience is very powerful, but they wanted more. They needed more. And so they met from house to house. Out of necessity, but also out of hunger. And so what took place, we can find right in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Let me read it. They devoted. What did they do next? It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. A sense of awe came over everyone, and the apostles performed many wonders and signs. And all the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods, they shared with anyone who was in need. With one accord, they continued to meet daily in the temple courts. Now, isn't that interesting? 
So they weren't just going there on the first day of the week. Man, they started the day at the temple courts where they would hear teaching from the apostles and then go back to the houses where they would still connect and, and, and maintain relationships. That was the church, folks. They continued to meet in the day at the temple courts and broke bread from house to house, sharing their meals with gladness and a sincere heart, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. In other words, this wasn't a cult-like experience. This wasn't a, you know, let's just go hide in the corner type deal. No, this was in front of everyone. And the community is watching going, this is amazing. What's taking place here is something we've never seen. These people are happy. These people's needs are getting met. They're taking care of their poor. They're taking care of their widows. They're taking care of the hunger, hungry. They're, they're, this is something we've never seen. And it says they enjoy the favor of the people. And then the most important part in the last verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So all of a sudden, the church is growing. It's growing. We start with 120. It goes to 3,000. And then who knows how many it goes to? Because it's just coming in the doors day after day after day, coming into the homes, showing up at the temple, because there they are in public, worshiping. And people are going, who are they? Oh, they're the Christians. Gosh, there's a lot of them. What's going on? Well, Peter, remember Peter? You remember John? Yeah, they're over there teaching right now. Well, let me go listen to this. And what are they teaching? Well, we're going to talk about that. So here are the components. Let's break them down for a moment and why they're so... See, see, some people would call, the scholars would call what is taking place here in Acts chapter 2, 42 through 47, as the template or the blueprint, if you will, for the church. And what's interesting is that how far we've gotten away from it. Because you may ask yourself, well, why do we do what we do? Why do churches do what they do? Well, I've asked that question many, 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 many times. And have been trained and have done certain things and, and, have, and have reassessed and, and, and become, uh, you know, embraced ingenuity to, 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 to work with a culture. And you'll see actually next week why that's important here in just a minute. But this is the blueprint. This is the starting point. And we have to, we have to embrace the idea right from the get-go that this just wasn't a harebrained idea of, of, of Thaddeus or somebody who would just raise their hand up. Well, maybe we should just meet at the temple court. No. These guys are praying, they're seeking God, and the first thing that comes by the Spirit, he says, go and meet publicly, and then go meet in your homes and watch what takes place. So this is a Spirit-led move, and clearly God's hand is upon it because God is blessing it with fruit. That which is good, that which has favor, that which is blessed will always grow in goodness and fruit. That's God's plan. So folks, what did they do? Well, the first thing was teaching. I already mentioned that. The apostles taught. And you know, they needed teaching. Boy, did they ever need teaching. <laughs> they didn't know. Most of these people had never heard one single word come out of Jesus' mouth. Well, the 12 disciples did. They were the teachers. Because they, they knew everything. They experienced everything. And so they would sit there and say, hey guys, now look, when it comes to us interacting, let me tell you what Jesus taught me. And they went through the parables, they went through the words, and they did creative things in order to remember the words of God. Of course, they began to write them down, but the Gospels, as we know them, did not come until later. So a lot of it was what they called oral tradition. And so they sang songs, they did all kinds of things to reinforce. They found out later, they better write all this down, and of course they did, thank God they did. And so they're teaching. 
They're helping these people who have gone from one paradigm to another, a legalistic religion controlled by blood to a religion, uh, a, 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 a relationship with God himself through the blood of Jesus Christ based on grace. And so they were coming in droves. And they taught and they taught and they taught. In time, they began as Paul got saved, Paul began writing these circular letters. In these circular letters, they all began to realize, these things are anointed. These, are, these, these things we should keep. And so they put them inside the Bible as anointed, inspired words of God. That's what we have today. So you might ask the question, well, Pastor David, how do we teach today? What? I mean, we don't have Jesus here. We don't have those original apostles. Well, guess what? God provided for that. Look at Ephesians chapter 4. 11 through 13, it says this. So Christ himself, so Christ is the one that set this up, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ, the church, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So what is Paul saying? He's saying, look, when these 12 apostles are gone, God is continuing to anoint, to ordain, and set aside and call men and women who will have ministry and be able to help the church grow in maturity and continue to attain several things. Unity. In other words, thinking the same about, this, about what the Bible says and constantly pushing that teaching, teaching, teaching. Folks, I'm telling you right now, right now in the history of the church, we need teaching more than we ever needed it. And, and, and that's interesting because more from the pulpit, you know, I, I, I mean, I've got certain aspects of, of, of my ministry and things that I can do, but since I have been here over 15 years and, and the elders, they know that that has been the real burden of mine. Is just, And I'm like... And so really, what, as a pastor, a lot of teachers, pastors and teachers and those who have pulpit ministries, there's really two major aspects of what, they, what we do. That is inspiration and teaching. Inspiration is, you know, it's getting, it's something that is caught, not necessarily taught. It, it is let passion be transferable. The problem with this transferable passion is it lasts about 10 steps out that door. Amen. I'm excited, man. Pastor got it all fired up here today. And you go out that door, and the next thing you know, you get a red light and one cuss word, and it's all gone. <laughs> Just like that. Just like that. Inspiration doesn't change your life, folks. Amen. Teaching will. Teaching will. And boy, do we ever need it. We got a whole generation of young people who do not know. Wait, they call it the post-Christian culture. Why do they call it that? Because what we would consider the Judeo-Christian ethic that, in other words, Christianity had so impacted our culture that right and wrong, the average person kind of had a good idea of what was right and wrong. Not anymore. Not anymore. And you probably ask them, well, today is Right to Life Sunday, as I understand it. Is, is that right? Is today the day? I think it is. And so here we're having this question. We're arguing over whether a baby that has been born alive should be able to live or not. A hundred years ago, we would have said, you're joking, right? You're kidding, right? I mean, human life, 10 commandments and all. But now, it, it's, it, it, even Christians are getting caught up in this, this, this 
existential truth, this truth that's on a sliding scale. Well, my truth is different than your truth because of my situation. No, it's not. That's not what the Bible teaches. Well, I've never, well, I don't know what the Bible says, but I know what I feel. Your feelings have nothing to do with it. Truth is truth. God didn't get up on the mountain and say, okay, these are 10 suggestions. He said, these are laws. These are things that control the universe. These are the things that I'm revealing to you, which will bless your life, to help your life, that will make sure that you can have the best life possible if you follow my ways. And every place where we get off of those ways, every time we, and that's called iniquity, by the way, taking things into our own matter, into our own uh, uh, you know, choice, then that's iniquity. Because you're saying, well, I think I know better than God. Ultimately, I can do this better than he has suggested. And, you know, I don't understand why he's done this, why he's given me the conditions that he's given me. I don't know why, you know, and sometimes the things we brought upon ourselves, some of the things that people have brought upon us. But if we don't go running to him to help us make sense of it. I shared this with a young person recently. I said, God will take every little chip, every piece, every experience of your life, whether it be a broken piece or it be a puzzle piece that's got shape, God can use it and will use it for his glory. And it's taken me a lot of years to live that, to be able to tell you that. Now, if I was a 20-year-old, you know, little fuzz on my chin here, you might just say, well, what do you know? I do know. I've watched my own suffering I've watched a lot of suffering, and I've watched a lot of people make a lot of choices. And I can tell you this, that God's ways are always right. Always yes and amen. Every man is a liar, only God is right. How do we learn these things? From the word of God. Teaching is where we get it. Teaching is where I look at my, young, my, ch- or my own children and I pour truth into their heads. I pour it in. It says, train up a child in the way he should go. I think parents kind of forget that second part. Train up a child and boom, get out of here. Go survive on your own. No, it's train up, a, train up a child in the way he or she should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Meaning they carried what you taught them all their life. The church needs teaching. Not only do we need it from the pulpit, not only, well, I don't use one of those anymore, but anyway, we don't, you, we need teaching we need teaching, we need teaching. We, we need to know what Jesus said and we need it applied to our lives and we need it to walk through it. We need to, and then we need to go from house to house and talk about it. Well, what Pastor David said was this, and I'm reading this. Can somebody help me understand this a little bit? How does that apply to this in my life? And then you work it out. You knead it in like the yeast throughout the dough and you get it into your life. You get it into your thinking. Truth, truth, the word of God has to be so in, into our thinking that it doesn't become that I'm having to make moral choices. No, moral choices are more instinctive because truth is in my inner parts, just as David said. Folks, we need some teaching and a lot more, which is why in the small group, in the house-to-house ministry, it's where it was all worked out. They talked about it. They discussed it. They encouraged. They prayed each other through the challenges of the word of God and its truth. Talk about what Jesus says. Hey, look, Peter, you were there when Jesus talked about, you know, the seed and, and sown on the good soil and the bad soil and the rocky soil. Tell me more about that. What did he really mean? Well, I'm glad you asked. 
and they would talk it through. They would, again, they would apply it to their lives. Well, well brother, do, do you feel like you've got rocky soil? Is your heart kind of rocky right now? I kind of think it is. Well, let's pray over that soil. Let's ask God to give you a fertile soil, a heart that is open and is tilled and then the plow pen is broken up so that it will go deep into your life. And then, and then you will be able to have the, 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 the strength of the fruit of God that will grow in your life. Secondly, what else do they do? Fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayer. Koinonia is the Greek word for this. And, and it's a great word. But essentially, it just means fellowship. But it's not just hanging out and, you know, watching a football game together. Even though that, that it often can be the starting point where there's an interest, where there's an affinity. Always a good idea, but not necessary. So, but what, what koinonia really means is we really get into each other's lives. I know your life. I know enough that when Kenny has a heart issue, that we start praying. We don't say, well, who's Kenny? Well, I don't believe there's anybody in this room who doesn't know Kenny, but anyway, you know what I'm saying. Or that we hear about a sister or a brother or somebody's going through something that you can, shoot, the body comes in like the musk, musk oxen. And what happens when, the, when one of the oxen, or even especially the babies, when they get into trouble, they all gather around with horns out and protecting that one. Even in, we can see this in nature. And so they would gather together and they would cover one another. They'd have true fellowship. They would share their lives. They'd have somebody join. And what was cool is that as they were doing this, somebody might walk in and say, guys, I want you to meet my second cousin. This is Shlomo. Shlomo Solomon in, in Hebrew. He got saved. He gave his life to Christ. Well, hey, how you doing, Solomon? Welcome. Come on in. Hey, somebody, can you make a little more room at the, at the, you know, at the table for him? Sure. Get a little tight in here. Well, Benjamin, do you think we can go to your house next week? Yeah. Say, so why don't you take those four families and you guys meet over there and we'll meet here. Sounds great. That's how it worked. And the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. Couldn't fit in the upper room anymore, folks. I'll get to that in a second. So they ate together. Yeah, Christians. You always wonder where food and Christianity came together? All started here. You can thank those guys for that. Yeah, Bible study, food, just goes to hand in hand. So that's what they did. They ate together with glad and sincere hearts. And some people were running a little short, so they, might, they, they were excited about that. And I'm sure if there was somebody who was really good, like a Rachel who could cook really well, you know, they're all going to end up at her house, you know, that kind of thing. But folks, there was a sense of benevolence that took place in this house-to-house thing. So as the fellowship and as the breaking of the bread and the sharing of lives, it said they were able to pray for one another, which was so cool. Now, I don't know if I shared this analogy in this service. I think I did it in, the, in, the, in Thursday night and the third, but I'll share it here. You know, so I've, I've seen this happen. And this is probably my favorite story to tell because it's, it was so impacting on my life. There was a young lady mother of just, I think, a baby or two, and she, wanted, she asked her husband, who did not, was not a believer, and said, can I host a group for, of ladies in our home? And he goes, yeah, as long as, you know, I mean, let's make sure they're gone about an hour and a half. I'll be in the back room watching TV. He was okay with it. And uh, so they were meeting, and all of a sudden, and then, of course, she got pregnant, and she starts showing she got great with child, and then all of a sudden, she came into the meeting, and she just said, guys, or ladies, uh, she's going to weep. There's something wrong with my pregnancy. And of course, they were all hushed, and they just said, well, we're not, we're not standing for this. 
So they got her in the middle of the room. They had the hot seat. They put the chair in the middle of the room. They just started praying for her. And they started praying and praying. Meeting after meeting, they just, they would not give up. And they got loud in their prayers. He's in the other room. And of course, he, she has told him, he's distraught because he's dad and he, he doesn't show it a lot, but he's distraught about what's going on. And so he opens, cracks the door and he looks in there and he sees all these people crying out for God, weeping over this little baby. And he's thinking, who on earth loves my child more than I do? Who are these people? And his heart began to melt. It began to change. And on Christmas Eve of that very year, he finally came to church for the first time. And Michael Fletcher, my pastor, I was standing over on this part of the stage. I was leading worship, and Andrew was playing piano, and that's what we did. And uh, Michael made an altar call. He ran to the front. He ran to the front. I'll never forget it. Weeping. He gave his life to Christ right there. Guess what? Became a deacon. Small group leader. One of my mighty men of action in those early days when I was doing that for the first time. Folks, that's how it works. And the Lord added daily to their number. How do they do it? Life change. Lives coming together. You know, living it out there, man. Putting your problems out there. Knowing what your struggles are and your battles. Sharing it with others who you know you can trust because they've already shared some of theirs. And you're praying and you're standing and you're koinonia and, and it's all happening. That's the life. That's where some of these, where do the awe and the miracles come from? Right there. And then benevolence, they began to share their needs. Now, I want to say something about this because, you know, the church gets a lot of criticism regarding uh, taking care of the poor. And, and, and in some cases, rightly so. But what is interesting about when we talk about taking care of the poor, we got to, you cannot take it outside the context of the house-to-house ministry. What I'm saying is this. It is an amazing challenge to know who's got a legitimate need and who doesn't. It's an amazing challenge. I mean, we're not, the church is not supposed to create a welfare society. And nobody even understood that. What, what it was supposed to be is that while these families are struggling, while they're going through what they're going through, while they come in and say, I just lost my, I just got kicked out of my synagogue. I just lost my job. I just lost half of my clientele and selling, you know, you know, pomegranates on the corner because I'm a Christian now. And they're going, well, we can't let that happen. So they gathered up. They would share they would do all kinds of things to care for one another in the context of the church. So I'm not saying that non-members can have access to benevolence. We do that all the time. We have a soup kitchen for people that are not members here. We go to Angel's Closet. We're involved in Union Mission. We do tremendous amount of things for the poor just because that's, that's what Jesus would do. But it really, when it comes to really getting what true benevolence is, to really take care of those who are in need, man, we got to get into the small groups. We got to get in among. So a lot of people say, people don't care. Well, ma'am, are you, do you have a small group that you belong to? Does anybody know you? Does anybody know your need? Well, I never got around to it. Need to get around to it. Because that's the way it's supposed to happen. That's the way it's supposed to work. Now, there's a tension here. There's a tension here because you say, well, then can we just slow the whole thing down and just stay in 120? Let's just be the 120 church. But they just grew to 3,000. Do you think they went back to the 120 room? No, they couldn't. They're done with that 120 room. They have moved on. You know, there's a lot of criticism these days about megachurches. 
But you know, that was the first one. There was one in Antioch as well, huge church, sending out missionaries all over around the world, including Barnabas and Paul, full of prophets, laying hands on them. A lot of criticism. And I remember as a young pastor, I was struggling with it too, just saying, man, Pastor Michael, we're growing so fast. I, I can't keep up with all the people. He said, well, David, and I, as I shared last week, he said, you need to multiply yourself. You need to train up leaders. You need to get busy. And he was absolutely right. Because when I go to God and I start saying, well, God, it's just, God is looking at me and says, David, um, what are you called to do? Minister to people. What are you called to do? Make disciples. David, what are you called to do? Reach people for you. How many? As many as you bring. Too often the church says, go away. We only got a room for 120. And we've lost what God has called us to be and to do. But with the house church, with the house-to-house ministry, you know, so everybody says, it's just too big. Well, (laughs) we can grow bigger and smaller at the same time when we understand how the church is supposed to be. When it functions the way it was always called to be, that numbers are not a restriction. Never have been. When it begins to grow, more leaders more pastors, more evangelists, more apostles and prophets, more of everything to be able to carry out the mission what God has called us to do. Folks, and I wonder sometimes, because you know, sometimes people also say, before I finish this, I, I'm getting behind, but before I finish this, in the criticism of large churches, they're, well, doesn't God like variety and all the little churches? And doesn't he like you know, the different doctrinal differences? And I've studied that and I've looked at that for many years. And I used to be the house of 31 flavors too. I used to be the guy, well, yes, God loves all the flavors. But then it just hit me like a ton of bricks. Have we not divided ourselves to absolute inadequacy? Amen. We have divided and conquered ourselves. So that nobody can really do anything. No real impact. But man, when you bring 3,000 Christians together, when you bring 10,000 Christians together, and we all get together and pray, oh, look out, devil. It's going to be like nuclear warfare coming through. Take over whole communities. Do amazing things. The footprint is not just a toe mark. It is boom. I've seen this happen over and over and over again. We divide ourselves into inadequacy. We divide ourselves into being conquered. We divide ourselves into complete inability to move because we're not open to growth. We're not open to to innovation. We're not open to the living, breathing, breathing reality of what the church is. The church is not a building, people. It's us. And we can be the church anywhere we darn well please. Whether it be in a temple court or in an old bar. Isn't that cool? So folks, and the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved because the church was being the church. Because we had had two aspects of evangelism as it says that were taking place. One, Peter was able to stand up and he did this multiple times by the way and you'll go throughout the New Testament and you'll see it's all there all through the book of Acts. Both were continuing to happen. Large groups of people coming to Christ and then daily those were just coming in like the fruit because Christians were being Christians. Living it praying for the sick, 
being, reaching their oikos. And what is that? That's your, that's your sphere of influence. You're dropped like an 82nd Airborne warrior right into your world. And what you bring with you is the weaponry designed to be uh, deployed in enemy territory. That's us. When people see that kind of stuff, who wouldn't want to be a part of enjoying such fellowship and support? Who wouldn't want to see people you know, experiencing miracles, finding out? I mean, wouldn't it be a great thing to, be, to have the reputation, go there, man, you'll get healed of cancer. That's what we're missing. So folks, to gain health, to be healthy as a church and to be healthy as an individual, we got to continue to grow bigger and smaller at the same time. You know, I, I saw this happen in a microcosm once. I had a youth group. I was a youth pastor, and I had a group, about 50, 60 kids, and then it kind of shrunk down, and then it got stagnant. And what I had was a bunch of Christian kids who just didn't want to do anything but just play games together. Drove me nuts, because all I was doing was babysitting. So I said, Lord, I need some converts, and I prayed for them, and I got me two or three Christian converts from the high school that came in and changed everything. New believers are what is what the church needs on a regular basis because they challenge us. We see the needs. We recognize the passion. They walk in and you look in their eyes and they're in love with Jesus the way you used to be in love with Jesus. And you realize, I need to get Jesus in my heart again like he does, like she does. That's the way it's supposed to work. Growing bigger and smaller at the same time. So folks, we're going to finish this morning by taking communion together, just like the early church did. And you know what? We're going to do it like this, the way we're doing it this morning, because it's kind of the way we've always done it. But let me just tell you, you can take communion at home with your family, in your small group, anytime you want. Anytime. The whole point of communion is to commune with him. The whole point of what we're getting ready to do right now is to remember what Jesus did. Can you imagine the communion experiences of those first disciples when they took the blood, the cup, and having seen the blood of Jesus, how they would weep when they drank it, just weep, trembling in their hands. Or the bread breaking it and remembering Jesus breaking that in front of them and realizing, I did not understand what he meant. Now I do. May God give us that same revelation today, amen? to remember what Jesus did for you, for me, to be able to sit here today free of our sins. Heaven's awaiting, but the ability to have his power and anointing. Amen? Folks, join with me as we pray. Lord, we want to prepare our hearts right now. Right now. Lord, to come to your table. Lord, in, an, in a sense, God, I pray right now that you would sweep over our congregation in these days a fresh sense of who we are new courage, new boldness. Lord, to not fear what the church is called to be in our part in it, but to be excited. What it means for our lives, what it means for those around us, what it means for our community. Lord, we don't have to wait to be told to be followers. Help us. Jesus, we come to your table this morning. Jesus, we're so grateful for what you did. Words can never, ever, are just not adequate. But Lord, we know what it means. You were beaten. You were lashed. You were bloodied. A crown of thorns and then 
brutally put to death on a cross. You didn't deserve it. You were not a criminal. The perfect son of God, the lamb of God for us. Lord, anyone in this room, Lord, today, God, any sins we've ever committed, forgiven and washed clean through a simple confession of faith, acknowledging, Lord, that yes, I sinned. But I thank you that my sins are washed clean in the blood of Jesus. Lord, as we take these symbols today, Lord, I pray that a fresh new grace would be poured into every one of us as we worship. May we respond. Lord, as, as we ingest these, we would remember that that's the importance. You are our bread of life. You are, God, the wine that brings us joy. You are, Lord, the fruit of the vine in every way. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining our live stream today. Make sure to like our Facebook page. And if you want more information about us, make sure to visit us at our website, valleychurch.us, or go and download our Valley Church app called Valley Church Weldon. If you feel led to give today, you can give on our website and on our app.